The Knights on the Unproducibles, a live reading of Lawrence Kasdan's 1978 first draft of Raiders of the Lost Ark, followed by a discussion with the cast of players. Raiders of the Lost Ark by Lawrence Kasdan. Story by George Lucas. Exterior, at the edge of a clearing. Crashing full speed through the foliage of the jungle, sweat over his whole body and bullwhip on his hip with his satchel, appears Indiana Jones. An instant later, the leaves around him are peppered with rain of poison darts and spears. Indy runs like hell through the steadily falling terrain. And always close behind, a swift gang of angry natives. Occasionally, they get close enough to send a dart or spear whizzing past Indy's head. Exterior, Sukurumba River, dusk. An amphibious plane sits on the water beneath the green cliff. The sun shines overhead, playing off the water. Sitting on the wing is Jock, the pilot. He has a makeshift fishing rod in, his, in the water. He smiles as the lion gets a tug. Indy comes plowing out of the brush and runs along the path at the side of the cliff. Jack! Jack! Start the engine! Get it up! Get it going! Jack has a moment of regret as he tosses the fishing rod into the water, hops in, and fires up the plane's engine. Indy finds a spot on the cliff above the plane, glances back, and then dives into the river. He comes up, swimming to the plane, and grabs a strut. Go! Jack! Start the engine! Jack starts the plane moving across the water as Indy hurries across the wing and falls into the passenger compartment. The plane lifts gently into the air, and the natives shout from the shore. Indy lets out a long exhale and relaxes. Lying across the seats, a big smile on his face. One hand drops to the floor of the cabin, and Indy jumps, hitting his head. On the floor of the cabin is a huge boa constrictor. Indy tries to get his whole body up on the seat. There's a big snake in the plane, Jack! Oh, that's my pet snake, Reggie. <laughs> Wouldn't hurt a soul. <laughs> I hate snakes, Jack! I hate them! Come on, show a little backbone. <laughs> backbone. The plane soars off over the dark jungle and into the sunsets. <sighs> New England University. Day. It is autumn and pretty. The New England campus is an array of dazzling colors. Interior. Lecture hall. Standing at the board, giving a lesson to a hall full of students, we find Indiana. He's quite different in this setting. His outfit is tweedy, slightly rumpled in a professorial style. He's wearing glasses. His hair is neatly combed to the side. The young students listen avidly. The girls in the seats stare dreamily at their attractive professor. Neo, meaning new and lithic. I T H I C, meaning stone. All right, let's go back to this Turkestan barrow mm. near Hazelton. Contains a passage and three chambers or cysts. Corridor. Marcus Brody, the curator for the National Museum in Washington, D.C., is walking slowly to Indy's classroom. He is distracted, his concerns elsewhere. He leans up to the window to Indy's room. Brody enters the classroom and moves to the back wall to observe. Not to life and limb, although that does somewhat take its place. No, I'm talking about folklore. 
In this case, local tradition held that there was a golden coffin buried on the site. And this accounts for the holes dug all over the barrow and generally poor condition of the find. However, chamber three was undisturbed, and the... One of the pretty young girls smiles at Indy. She has I love you written on her eyelids. This throws Indy off for a moment. Uh, Undisturbed chamber, (laughs) and the grand goods that were found at another, uh... In the given area, uh, reasons to, uh, date this find we have. The bell rings. All students immediately begin to pack up their things and leave. Any, any questions? No, okay. That's it for today's lesson. Don't forget Michelson chapters four, five for next time, and I will be in my office on Thursday, but not on Wednesday. The room slowly clears. Marcus approaches Indy. Indy is anxious. He waits for all the students to exit before he speaks to his friend. I had it, Marcus. I had it in my hand. What happened? Guess. Bellock. <laughs> Want to hear about it? Not at all. I'm sure everything you do for the museum conforms to the International Treaty for the Protection of Antiquities. It's beautiful, Marcus. I can get it. I got it all figured out. There's only one place you can sell it. Marrakesh. Marrakesh. <laughs> you want to try it again? <laughs> Where? I Get out of this classroom. <laughs> Thank you, Marcus. I'm pretty yes, sure you can only sell it in Marrakech. Oh, I just need $2,000. <laughs> Listen to me, old boy. I brought some people to see you. Look, look, I got the pieces. They're good pieces. Marcus, look, you see? Yeah, Indy, yes. Uh, I, the, the museum will buy them as usual. No questions asked. <laughs> yes, yes, they are nice. <laughs> They're worth at least the price of a ticket to Marrakech. <laughs> and then Brody says... Brody's trying to think of his accent. <laughs> <laughs> the people I brought are important, and they're waiting. What people? Army intelligence. They knew you were coming before I did. Ooh. Seems to know everything. Wouldn't tell me what they wanted. Well, what do I want to see them for? What am I in trouble? Interior, lecture hall classroom. The elderly, Indiana did, around the questionably Scottish Marcus, <laughs> are crossing the lecture hall the two men in suits, Army Officer Colonel Musgrove and Major Eaton, who are situated around the first seats of the classroom. Yes, Dr. Jones, we've heard a great deal about you. <laughs> Professor of archaeology, expert of the occult. And oh, how does one fate? Obtainers of rare antiquities. The four men gather around the lecture hall desk. Indy sets his briefcase and rolls a paper down. Eaton and Musgrove sit. Marcus leans against the podium. Thank you. Yes, you're a man of many talents. You studied under Professor Ravenwood at the University of Chicago? Yes, I did. You have no idea of his present whereabouts? Just rumors, really. Somewhere in Asia, last I heard. I haven't really spoken to him in ten years. We were friends, but, uh, I'm afraid we had a bit of falling out after I nailed his daughter. (laughs) (laughs) Musgrove and Eaton exchange a look. They're disappointed, but they want to hear more about this story. Maybe Dr. Jones can make some sense of it. The military men have a silent communication, deciding what to reveal. Dr. Jones, now you must understand that this is all strictly confidential. I understand! Yesterday afternoon, one of our European sections intercepted a Nazi communique that was sent from Cairo to Berlin. Congestion gone, Musgrove takes a sheet from his briefcase. See, over the last two years... 
The Nazis have had teams of archaeologists running all over the whole world looking for all kinds of religious artifacts. Hitler's a nut on the subject. He's crazy. He's obsessed with the occult. And right now, apparently, there's some sort of German archaeological dig going on in Cairo. We've got something here. Information, but we can't make anything out of it, and maybe you can. Musgrove removes the paper from his briefcase again. Here it is. Taintus development proceedings. No, I believe it's Tannis. <laughs> Acquire headpiece, Staff of Ra, Abner Ravenwood, U.S. Brody is excited. Oh, yes. <laughs> he looks at Indy. The Nazis have discovered Tannis! Oh. Indy contemplates this big news. He's impressed. Just what does that mean to you, Tannis? Well... The city of Tannis is one of the possible resting places of the Lost Ark. The Lost Ark? You know, the Ark of the Covenant, the chest the Hebrews used to carry around the Ten Commandments. What do you mean, the Ten Commandments? You mean the Ten Commandments? Yes, the actual Ten Commandments, the original stone tablets that Moses brought down from the mountain Horeb and smashed, if you believe in that sort of thing. Indy can see the men are not following. Either of you guys go to Sunday school? Well, I... Look, the Hebrews took the broken pieces and put them in the ark, where they settled in Canaan, and they put it in a place called the Temple of Solomon. In Jerusalem. Where it stayed for many years, until all of a sudden, poof, it's gone. Where? Well, nobody knows where however, or when. However, an Egyptian pharaoh... Shishek. Yes, invaded the city of Jerusalem around 980 BC, and they may have taken the Ark back to the city of Tanish and hidden it in a secret chamber called the Well of Souls. Secret chamber. They said I had the weird voice. However, about a year after the pharaoh returned to Egypt, the city of Tanish was consumed by a desert in a sandstorm. It was consumed by the desert... <laughs> Was it chocolatey? <laughs> it was sprinkles on top. Ah, ah yes. Ah. Correction, sorry. It's a desert. It's consumed by the desert. Okay. Ah. And a sandstorm that lasted a whole year. Ah. Wiped clean by the wrath of God. Ah. Eaton has heard enough. He moves to leave, but Musgrove stops him. No, 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 obviously. We've come to the right men now. You seem to know all about this taintus. No, no, not really. Ravenwood is the real expert. Abner did the first serious work on Tannis, collected some relics. It was his obsession, really, but he never found the city. Frankly, we're suspicious of Mr. Ravenwood. An American being <laughs> being mentioned so prominently in a secret Nazi cable? Oh, rubbish. The Ravenwood is no Nazi. Well, what do the Nazis want him for, then? Well, obviously, the Nazis are looking for the headpiece to the Staff of Ra, and they think Abner's got... What exactly is the headpiece to the Staff of Ra? Well, the Staff is just a stick, really. Nobody really knows how big the Staff is, but I maybe no. Uh, it's capped off with an elaborate headpiece. Indy goes to the chalkboard and draws on it. He's excitedly teaching his men. Marcus <laughs> grins at Indy's enthusiasm. <laughs> it's in the shape of a sun with a crystal in the center. And what it did was, you took the staff in a special room in Tannis, a map room with a miniature of the city. It's like Legos laid out on the floor. And if you place the staff in a certain place at a certain time of day, the sun shone right through here, made a beam that came down on the exact location of the Will of Souls. Where the, uh, uh, the Ark of the Covenant was kept, right? Which is exactly what the Nazis are looking for. 
What does the Ark look like? Well, let me pull up my iPad. I can show you a picture right here. Indy moves to the desk and slides a pile of books around. He pulls a big format book from the stacks on his lectern and flips through the pages until he finds a large colored print. The other men gather to look. The print fills the screen. It shows a biblical battle. The Israelite army is vanquishing its, uh, the opposition force. At the forefront of the Israelite ranks, two men carry the Ark of the Covenant, a beautiful gold chest crowded by two sculpted gold angels. The men do not touch the Ark itself, rather than carry it by the use of two long wooden poles which pass through the rings, the, the rings in the corner of the Ark. The painting is very dramatic, full of smoke, tumults, and sinewy dying men. The most astounding thing in the picture is the brilliant jet of white light and flames issuing from the wings of the angels. It pierces deep into the ranks of the retreating men, wreaking devastation and terror. Good God! Yes, that's what the Hebrews thought. Now, uh, now what's that supposed to be coming out of there? Who knows? Lightning? Fire? Power of God or some shit. <laughs> Indy walks back over to the board and looks at his drawing again. I'm beginning to understand Hitler's interest in this thing. Oh, yes. The Bible tells of it leveling mountains and wasting entire regions. Moses promised when the ark was with you, your enemies would be scattered and your foes fell before you. Your foes fell before you. An army which carries the ark before it is invincible. Eaton and Musgrove exchange worried looks. Exterior, front door, Indy's house, net. Indy's English tutor, upper middle class home, quite nice, well beyond the financial reach of an honest college professor. Ding dong. Marcus Brody has already rung the bell. Ding dong. Indy opens the door excitedly. He's wearing comfortable clothes and a Ooh. shirt with a robe over it. Good God, Indy, tie that thing up. You, you did it. You did it, didn't you? They want you to go for it. Marcus! They'd want you to get a hold of the Ark before the Nazis do, and they prepare to pay handsomely for it. And the museum gets the Ark when we're finished? Well, well yes, of course. Indy is ecstatic. He picks up two glasses, pours drinks for himself and Marcus in celebration. Can I actually have one of those? Oh, yeah. Oh, thank you. Brody enters the book-lined dark wooden study. He paces for a moment before the fire, which is dying in the fireplace, then spots something and goes over to Indy's big desk. The surface is covered with open books, monographs, maps, and drawings, all about the Ark of the Covenant. It's a photo of me on your desk. Brody smiles. He knows his friend is very well. Brody turns to him with triumphant expression. The Ark of the Covenant. Nothing else has come close. That thing represents everything we got in archaeology. I'm going to redo that line. That thing represents everything that we got into archaeology for in the first place. We should stop drinking. They clink glasses and drink anyway. You know, five years ago, I would have gone after it myself. I'm really rather envious. <laughs> Indy hurries over to his closet. He removes a suitcase and tosses clothes and his bullwhip into it. I've got to get... I've got to locate Abner. I think I know where to start. Uh, suppose she'll still be with him? Possibly, but Marion's the least of your worries right now, believe me, Indy. What do you mean? Well, I mean that, uh, well, nearly 3,000 years man has been searching for the Lost Ark. That's something to be taken lightly. No one knows its secrets. It's like nothing we've gone after before. <laughs> Marcus, what are you trying to do, scary? You sound like my mother. We've known each other for a long time. I don't believe in magic. 
a lot of stupid, superstitious hocus pocus. I'm going after a find with incredible historic significance. You're talking about the boogeyman. Besides, Indy tosses a pistol onto the top of his suitcase. You know what a cautious fellow I am. Wipe two, exterior, an airship day. On the harbor, bobbing in the gentle waves, Indy boards a Pan Am Clipper. Interior, Clipper. On board, a flight attendant offers Indy a glass of champagne. He passes and takes his seat. Near the back of the small plane, looking over the edge of a Life magazine, a mysterious man in glasses and black fedora eyes Indy. Indy takes his own hat, leans back for a nap, and the plane moves off to the horizon. Exterior, in the air, day to night. The Pan Am Clipper flies west over the Pacific. Wipe two. The plane flies west into the sunset and is superimposed over the map of the Pacific. Exterior, Bataan, Nepal, night. Pushing over the snow-capped mountains, a shabby tavern comes into view. The Raven. Nevermore. It is a lonely, warm spot surrounded by the blizzard and the frozen night. Interior, the Raven Saloon, night. A huge stuffed raven, wings spread wide, is mounted behind the long bar in the noisy, crowded saloon. A lively mix of patrons is represented in the late-hour tableau. Nepalese natives, a fierce Sherpa mountain guide, sleazy international smugglers and fugitives, and, of course, mountain climbers from every corner of the earth. In the corner near the fireplace, a large group of these unsavory individuals are gathered in close circle around a single table where two people are seated face-to-face in an intense drinking competition that is reaching its climax. There are several overturned shot glasses, bets, being shouted. Money thrown around. Sitting at one end of the small table is Marion Ravenwood, a beauty amongst the ruffians. Small in stature but powerful in presence, she is right at home among the scum and villainy. The bar has quieted ominously as the glass is raised to a scraggly, dirty mouth of the man opposite Marion. The sweaty, large climber holds the drink for a moment. The room holds its breath. The climber throws the drink back. The crowd cheers! It's quickly hushed. Quickly hushed as all eyes turn to Marion. She lifts her own shot slowly. She looks weak. She has put a lot of liquor in her body. She takes the shot nice and slowly. Her head droops. The crowd murmurs. Some in disappointment. Money begins to exchange hands. Marion slowly turns the glass in her hand. Her eyes raise to her, the, her opponent. She places huh? the shot glass huh? upside down on the table. <laughs> right at her opponent. The crowd cheers and cheers. The man's chubby hand picks up the next shot. He smirks with confidence, lifts the drink. He lets the liquor slide down his gullets. The men standing behind him react with cheers. Yeah. And the Marion's challenger slides right off his chair and onto the floor. Marion has won. The crowd roars excitedly while some bemoan the loss of their money. Marion rises from the table, picking up the money and shouting at the men around her. She moves to the bar while waving them away. All right, that does it. I've been patient with you. No good's long enough. I'm not open at 2 o'clock for myself, and you know it. It's all for you. And how do you repay me? Trouble and noises and blood on my floor. I want to have it. Everybody out. Out, out. We're closed. Closed. You're killing us. And don't leave any bodies on my porch. Marion's employee, Mudlow, helps shove people along. 
The place clears quickly. Stragglers and grumblers are pushed through the exit. As the herd crowds out the front door, Marion turns and walks to the bar, a scowl on her lovely face. She counts her winnings. She looks up as a shadow falls across the wall before her. A fedora. A whip. Hello, Marion. Marion turns and looks at the entrance. She drops the shot glasses in her hand and walks forward with a cold smile and her hands on her hips. Indiana Jones. I always, always knew someday you'd come walking back through my door. The wind howls. Never doubted it. Something made it inevitable. So what are you doing here in Nepal? Well, I need one of the pieces your father collected. Marion slugs Indy right across the face. I learned to hate you in the last ten years. Oh, yeah. Uh, Nursing my jaw. I never meant to hurt you. I was a child. I was in love. It was wrong and you knew it. You knew what you were doing. No, I do. This is my place. Get out. I did what I did. You don't have to be happy about it. But maybe we can help each other out now. I need one of those pieces your father collected. A bronze piece about the size with a hole and an off-center with a crystal. You know what I mean? Marion walks away and begins clearing tables. Yeah, sure, I know it. She moves right past Indy with a tray of glasses. Where's Abner? Abner's dead! Indy's attitude changes instantly. Bro. This is sad news. He is silent for a long time. Mudlow comes in the front door and hurries across and forward to see Indy with Marion. Mudlow is holding an axe. He looks to her for guidance, but she stays him with a gesture. Go home, Mudlow. I'll see you tomorrow. Mudlow is hesitant, but lays the axe handle on the bar and goes out. Indy has been barely aware of him. Marion has a vindictive look. What happened? At lunch, up there. He was digging. What else? He spent his whole life digging, dragging me all over this rotten earth for what? Did you find him? Hell no! He's buried or he was working. Probably preserved and real good, too. You know, in the snow. Suddenly, the hardness cracks. She's on the verge of tears. Does not want him to see it. She turns away and takes a whiskey bottle from the shelf, then turns back to pour herself a drink. Not a bad way to go. Doing what he loved. Don't give me that shit! What do you know? I'm the one who was left in the bad way. He didn't have a penny. Guess how I live, Mr. Jones. I worked here, and I wasn't the bartender. Finally, the guy that owned the joint went crazy. Snow crazy. They took him away screaming, and they dragged him out. He said the place was all mine for life. She looks around the saloon. Can you imagine a more evil curse? So far, it's working. I'm sorry, Marion. Do you know what you did to me, to my life? I can only say I'm sorry so many times. Well, say it again anyway. Marion throws a tray of drinks over the bar. I'm sorry? She continues to clear tables. Yeah, everybody's sorry. Abner was sorry for dragging me all over the earth, looking for his little bits of junk. I'm sorry I'm still stuck in this joint. Everybody's sorry for something. It's a worthless bronze medallion, Marion. Are you going to give it to me? Maybe. I don't know where it is. Well, maybe you could find it. (laughs) I hold money in my hand. Three thousand bucks. <laughs> Mary considers it as she passes. <laughs> Better get me back home. Back to America, but not in style. <laughs> I can't, damn it. 
Do you have more money, Indy? Uh, you know, I, I can give you another 2000 when we get to the States. Really? It's important, Marion. Hold on, this is important. Trust me. You know the piece I mean? He puts the money in her hand and closes her fingers around it. Come back tomorrow. Why? Because I said so, that's why. Jesus. <laughs> Marion walks forward, turns, and sits on the edge of a table. Indy is anxious, but he relents. He moves to the door. He stops for a moment. See you tomorrow, Indiana Jones. Indy glances back, but then exits, shutting the door as he goes. Marion stares after him, thinking. She takes her drink and moves to the bar. She sits. The fire glows behind her. The wind whistles. Then slowly, her hand comes to loosen the scarf that is draped around her throat. Ooh. It falls away, revealing her graceful neck above the dipping top of her blouse. Hanging there on a gold chain against her white skin is the bronze medallion. Marion lifts the medallion so she can see it in her hand, then looks thoughtfully after Indy. She holds the money in one hand and the medallion in her other. She looks from one to the other. Standing, Marion hangs the medallion on a small figurine on the bar. She stands before the fireplace that is shrinking, the fire dwindling. She jabs at the edit abstractly with a poker, thinking. Suddenly, tears well up in her eyes. She lets the poker slip from her hand, wipes away the tears. She walks across the room to the end of the bar, still cluttered with bottles and glasses. She stops at the pile of American money Indy has left her. Then, having reached some decision, she picks up the pile of bills, walks up the back of the bar, and pulls a small wooden box from underneath. She flips open the top, puts the cash inside, and closes it. The door opens. Wind whips. Standing there is the man in the black fedora from the plane. Tot, a small, rat-like man in black. He's standing in front of the three men. Und good evening, Fräulein. Sorry, fellas. Bar's closed. <laughs> we are not thirsty. Oh, no. <laughs> the men with Tot, the Mongolian and the Nepalese, poke around, checking to make sure that there is no one else there. No, no one else Down at the end of the bar, the medallion lies partially what? hidden by surrounding glasses and bottles. The second Nazi stops very near it, but turns his back to it and faces Tot and Marion. What do you want? The same thing your friend Dr. Jones wanted. Yeah, yeah. Surely they... He told you there would be more interested parties. Yeah, surely he did, yeah. Parties. Marion shakes her head. I don't know, that must have slipped his mind. <laughs> Such man is nefarious. <laughs> I hope for your sake he has not yet acquired it. Tot approaches Marion slowly, like a predator. Why? Are you willing to offer more? I most certainly am. Oh, God. Do you still have it? Yes, yes. Tot stands face to face with Marion and blows smoke in her face. <laughs> oh, no, but I know where it is. Tot's smile fades at the news. He's not a patient sort. Marion is chilled by the look. She turns and moves to the shelf of bottles behind her and withdraws a whiskey bottle as the Mongolian walks towards her behind the bar. Marion opens the bottle before Tot, who watches her intently. How about a drink for you and your men? Yeah, I would like the second Nazi drink. lights up at the suggestion. Tot gets him a withering look. <laughs> Fine. Why don't you come back tomorrow when Jen's here and we'll have an auction? Oh, Tot gives her a cold yeah. look, then turns and walks towards the fireplace. 
As soon as his back is turned, the second Nazi grabs the nearest whiskey bottle and takes a quick pull. In doing so, he leaves the medallion completely exposed. Marion is aware of this, and she looks at him, but he quickly puts the bottle down again, obscuring the medallion when Tot speaks from the fireplace. I'm afraid an auction is not possible. Your fire is dying here, Fräulein. It's surely dying. Why don't you tell us where the piece is right now? Listen, Herr Mac, I don't know who you're used to dealing with, but no one tells me what to do in my place. still looking at the fire, sneers and shakes his head. Fräulein Ravenwood, I'll show you what I'm used to. He motions with his hand. The Mongolian moves up behind Marion and lifts her roughly over the top of the bar, knocking over bottles and spilling liquor. He deposits her on the other side where the Nepalese and the second Nazi flank her and hold her cruelly, arms behind her back. Marion raises a ruckus. Get your hand off me! Todd turns from the fireplace. In his hand is the poker. It's glowing orange. He advances on Marion. Marion stops yelling, her eyes wide in terror. Wait, I, I can't I can be reasonable. That time is past. The glowing poker point moves inexorably across the room towards Marion's face. You don't need that. I'll tell you everything. Yes, I know you fear. Oh, no. Todd has no intention of stopping now. The glowing tip is approaching Marion's face. The Nepalese watch with savage glee. The tip of the poker is five inches from Marion's nose, and there's a loud crack. And the fall of Indy's bullet wraps around the middle of the poker and tears it from Todd's hand. The poker sails across the room, free from the whip. It lands by the heavy curtains and cover the window, and curtains immediately burst into flames. The four bad men look in surprise towards the front entrance. Indy is poised there, the whip in his right hand, a forty-five automatic raised towards them in the left. He's got a gun! Oh no! Let him go! Let her go! Which do you want us to do? Let the woman go! Everything begins to happen very fast. The Mongolian has just come around the bar at the end opposite the medallion. He dives back to crouch behind the bar and raising a submachine gun. Tot and the second German dive behind tables near the bar. The Nepalese is slower to leave Marion. He draws a Luger. Indy's 45 bucks, and the Nepalese dies, spinning against the bar. Indy fires in the direction of the Mongolian. Marion swings up over the top of the bar. Tot fires at her, but his bullets smash bottles behind the bar and thud into a raven. Marion flattens out on the floor behind the bar as bullets hit her above. She reaches up, snatches the axe handle from where Mandlo left it, and begins crawling down the length of the bar towards the Mongolian, who sticks his submachine gun out and fires blindly in this direction. Are you guys open yet? Indy is crouched behind the table, trying to get a shot at someone. He doesn't notice the din in, in the din in confusion where the, when the doors burst open, an incredible, fearsome, giant Sherpa, almost seven feet tall, soars in and tackles Indy from behind. The whip flies from Indy's hand, and he and the giant Sherpa roll into the floor, upsetting the furniture. The Mongolian, seeing this, stands up confidently. Marion rises behind him and smashes him over the head with the handle. He goes down and out. Fire has completely engulfed the curtains and is working its way across the ceiling in decorative yak skin bunting. The burning fragments drop to the top of the bar and immediately light up, fueled by the spilled alcohol. 
fuel, full of whiskey bottles explode like Molotov cocktails. Rolling on the floor, Indy and the giant Sherpa are fighting for control of Indy's 45. Todd sees this, shouts to the second Nazi, who's rising from cover with the submachine gun in his hand. Shoot them, boss! He's armed. He's armed. What are you? What are you fucking doing? I said. Both You're the giant the Sherpa and Indy hear this. The giant Sherpa exchanged an alarmed look, and Indy, together, they swing the 45 around towards the surprise second Nazi. A blast blow. That done, Indy brings the brass platoon down on the giant Sherpa's wrist, and the 45 slides away. Indy jumps up and kicks the giant who barely feels it. He grabs Indy and flips him effortlessly onto the table. Now it's a clear shot of Indy. He raises his Luger. Marion, at the end of the bar, finally gets her hand on the Mongolian submachine gun. It roars to life in the general direction of the ceiling. Top runs for cover as Marion gets control of the gun and levels it. Type dives around the end of the bar opposite Marion. He peeks up over the edge of the scorched bar. The alcohol fire has moved down the bar, and now, much to Top's surprise, he finds himself staring at the fire-blackened, sun-shaped medallion. His eyes widen. He cannot believe his good fortune. Without hesitation, he picks up the metal medallion, palming it. Immediately, there's a sickening, searing sound, and Tot's expression changes from joy to agony. He screams in pain and tries to shake the red-hot metal from his skin. The medallion comes free from Tot's hand, rolls across the floor. Tot has had enough. In excruciating pain, he turns, sees the window, runs, and dives through the glass. An exhausted Indy uses his whole body to upend the giant Sherpa, who lands hard on his back. They are surrounded by flames. Exterior, snowbank. Tot has burned hand stuck deep in the snow. Now he withdraws it, steaming, and scurries off into the night like a wounded animal. Interior, the raven. Marion throws down the empty submachine gun and moves through the flames to the center of the bar, where she left the box with the five grand. She finds the remains of the box and its contents. Shapeless pile of ash and charred wood. Damn it! Burn! Unbelievable. At the end of the bar, the Mongolian has come back to life. He shakes off his head, then reaches inside his coat and pulls out a Mauser pistol. Indy smashes a chair over his head, and the huge creature goes down. The Mongolian points the Mauser through the smoke and flame at Indy. Suddenly, a shot is heard. The Mongolian is dead. Marion stands beneath her stuffed raven with the Beretta. Indy moves quickly through the flames, his eyes scanning the floor. He picks up his bullwhip and his crumpled felt hat. He peers through the smoke until he spots Marion moving through the burning furniture. Let's get out of here! Not without my medallion! It's here! Marion nods, kicks aside a burning chair. Another burning beam falls from the roof. Indy pulls Marion close to him, protectively. Forget it! I want you out of here now! He begins dragging her out. It's over there! She breaks away from him, darts back, and picks up the hot medallion. Loose with a loose cloth cloth from her blouse. Ooh. Exterior, just outside the raven. Nevermore. Standing in the snow, the fire raging behind them. The raven crumbling. Marion holds the medallion. Well, Jones, at least you still know how to show a lady a good time. Boy, you're really something, you know that? Yeah, I'll tell you what I am. Until I get my five thousand dollars, you're gonna get more than you bargained for. She holds the medallion up possessively. I'm your goddamn partner!
open and shut the door a couple more times. <laughs> yeah. <Ch-chunk. laughs> it's the only actual sound effect. And the, uh, the shot glasses, the batteries falling on the table. Like, that's yeah. just, like, the two. <laughs> and you putting the drink down were the, the only Fully. three sound effects. But I enjoyed the uh, I enjoyed the sidekick Nazis. Oh yeah! I liked Indy doing the action lights because the narrator couldn't stop laughing. Well, I guess I'm gonna stand up now. <laughs> all right, all right. Yeah, well, welcome back from that quick little break. Thank you for listening to that rather interesting wow. reading of I'd watch that. Movie. I, I would too. We nailed it. I mean, uh, that was like 100. percent Little little known fact that was the original tape Raiders of, of Raiders, Star, right? Yeah. I was doing my best Tom Selleck. I don't know if you know. That. Is that what that was? Yeah, it's my Tom uh, Selleck. Let's let's go around the room and introduce ourselves. <laughs> I'm I'm TC Dewitt. I read the narrator and Tots and Eaton. And right next to me, I'm Jessica. And I read the role of Marion. She's like so pissed at Indy because he got old. <laughs> <laughs> oh, we're coming back to that because just, I, for, yeah. For, okay, let me come back to that because this Go your, your portrayal made it really weird for Go a ahead. second. For the blinds, uh, I'm Jeff. I did uh, Jock mm-hmm. and Brody, Brody yeah. and sound effects and, Foley. and sound effects and Foley yes. and random Nazi sidekick to tote tot tote tot. Right, over here, I'm Chad. I did Indiana Jones <laughs> and over here. That's what she said. Uh, Chris and I was Musgrove, the very confused <laughs> soldier. Okay, I, I there's so much to talk about. Right <laughs> okay, let, let me let me just rein it in here. For just uh, media, like moderating purposes here. So uh, this section of the podcast, we are just going to discuss the script we just translated. <laughs> so the the I, I think I have an idea. I think this what we just did has to be how the Family Guy people wrote Star Wars. Absolutely, <laughs> this has that has to be how they did it. They took, they the, took the script and just. And just Right. Did it? Yep. Yep. As whatever characters they thought they, were they those took roles. out Indiana Jones and put Stewie, you know, Peter Grant, right. yeah, Griffin like, and Stewie yeah. or whatever. Yeah, that, yeah. That has to be how they did it. And because then when they ad libbed lines, like kind of like what we were doing when we screwed up, they're like, "Oh, that's, that's funny. Going in. Put yeah, that in that the movie." There. Yeah. yeah. That is an in- like we were maybe like five minutes into it. I'm like, that's how they. That has to be how they yeah. did it. to translate a script. To that was very funny, and we didn't have to change the lines. It was no, how the lines no. were delivered. Yeah, I've I've spoken on uh, the Rewatchman podcast, one of the other Firmament podcasts. I've discussed many times that parody movies now don't get it. Airplane no. and even Scary Movie, like Scary Movie, was kind of the end. It of was the, the end of the, the era. Of, yeah. yeah, those movies are so damn funny because no one is telling a joke. No, no one is up there. They're goofy, the, like hamming it up. Comedic, play, comedic players playing a straight part. Yeah, Leslie Nielsen was a dramatic actor yeah. cast in that role. It launched his comedy career. Yep. And the reason it worked so well is because nobody, like everyone, played it. They committed it's to the choices cut, they yep, made. Yep. So, anyway, all right, well, I mean, the first thing anyone said when we cut was like, "That was really fun." So, yes, that <laughs> yes. was really. Fun. I feel like we need to do more of these. Yes. <laughs> like, in, just every once in a while, let's just scatter one of these in here, where it's just it's a recognizable. Let's do movie. Green Mile, right? Yes. Let's do something <laughs> like Shawshank, or like really serious, and let's just go with it. I yes. well, I, you know, and what a risk to take such an iconic film that everybody loves and everybody grew up with. Yeah. Except Chris, who claims he never saw it, which is not true. Because I've been with him when he's watched it. I don't feel like I've seen it. But, but it, it, it's defined so many characters and roles and yeah, remember when yeah. and the relationship. And we just blew it apart <laughs> without changing any That's of the That's why I wanted to do something so drastically different. Because if I sat here trying to do Harrison Ford's Indiana Jones, yeah. it sucked. 
Oh, yeah. yeah. And that, would, that wouldn't have been any fun. No. Because then it would be like, well, why don't you just go listen to the audio instead of this podcast? Exactly. Right. And I, feel like, I feel like I should have done, and I realized this halfway through, I should have done Brody as like Keanu Reeves oh, or yeah. somebody. Because <laughs> now that it was like, we got halfway through it, and I was like, oh, no, no, this was wrong. This is not, if we were going this direction, the way we went or the way you guys went, I'm like, I am the one that's completely out of place. I, I almost like, wonder if, I mean, doing what we did, I think would have been that much funnier if we hadn't told each other what we were going to do. Yeah. You were like practicing Bill Clinton. Yeah. If you had just like, I know the voice I'm going to do. Yeah. But we know for future reference. Oh, yeah. Future reference. This yeah. Will be well, down. I missed some of this prep. So when Valley Girl showed up as Mary. Oh, you didn't know Valley Girl? <laughs> I had no it? idea. Oh, good. So it's some surprise. Let's make a quick comment about Valley Girl. By let's, let's address a couple lines, <laughs> shall we? Valley Girl sounds like she's what? 17, 18 yeah, years yeah, old? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Jeff, because in real life, I'm not. Right, you know. Uh, Marion, I learned to hate you in the last ten years. So that'd make her Indy. seven. Oh, my goodness. Um, I never meant to hurt you. Seven. I was a child. I was in love. Oh, that, that quote always bugged me in that yes. movie. Because that See, means, how old was Marion supposed I, to actually be then? I thought right? for the movie, because in the movie, she kind of looks like in her late 20s. So I always assumed she was a late teenager. Like a rape. So for that time, that's okay. it would have been acceptable today. Yeah. It would not have been. But, but it's like, in, in my in, head, the Valley Girl made her a lot, a lot younger, younger than yes. she was in the movie. Do you know how old Indiana Jones looks 10 years later? Uh, that's true. <laughs> Tell me! Well, that's an interesting translation <laughs> from, from page to production. Yeah. To, sure. to bring it. Yeah, and absolutely. In casting, like, I wonder if the script for Entrapment really envisioned Sean Connery and Catherine Zeta-Jones, because that's like a 30-year <laughs> difference. Yeah. Right? Someone wrote that was probably like, hey, let's get uh, someone, let's get Brad Pitt and you know, uh, uh, Julia Roberts. <laughs> like, let's get a little closer <laughs> in age here. Let's get younger-ish people. Yeah. So, and, and reimagining the script, interpreting it, like, oh, man. Like, okay, well, so how this... How old was Indy? I mean, think about it. How old was Indy in this script? I was thinking of Indiana Jones 20 years after King of the Crystal Skull. Well, and here's... <laughs> so he's, like, 75. So he's, like, 70, and but she's in, what? No, but in the film, <laughs> he's a tenured professor. Yeah. yeah. That's... I get that, but our Marion, well, you know, based on this would have been, like, seven when they met. Yeah. Six That's what Jeff is saying. That's yeah. what he's saying. Yeah. <laughs> Marion was a younger. Indiana Jones. You like leave me here with Abner in the oh cold. Abner, he's like fifty. Oh my God. <laughs> Sorry, so I'll I stop. think <laughs> don't stop. Uh, this, oh. <laughs> the, the, so to, to think of this as would you produce this? Would you take it and and do this? Right? I I do think producing it this way would. Uh, okay, when uh, Kingdom of the Crystal Skull was about to come out, they did. Uh, there was a tour of Raiders of the Lost Ark, the yep. adaptation. Do you know of this movie? Do you know this movie? Mm-hmm. Okay, this was a group of twelve-year-olds in 1981 when Raiders of the Lost Ark. They saw it. They wanted to make that movie. Yep. So in 1981, with the technology they had, every summer for four years, they remade shot for shot, line for line, moment for moment. Indiana Jones Raiders of the, the Lost Ark. The bar scene, they used a specific type of uh, uh, lighting fluid that would, if you would pat it down, it would go away. Like, they did oh, dangerous nice. They set their basement on they fire. They set their basement on fire <clears throat> but to shoot this. Nuts. Interestingly enough, I saw Kingdom of the Crystal Skull the week later. Seeing that adaptation was the most, it was mesmerizing, it was so endearing, and it was so inspiring to see this group of kids pre-YouTube, pre-digital technology, talking about video, making the Raiders of the Lost Ark, just remake it, but their best version they could make of it was so neat. So I think doing Raiders of the Lost Ark this way wouldn't be a bad idea because it would be freaking hilarious oh, yeah. to have a 90-year-old man <laughs> to have a 17-year-old valley girl. <laughs> and I'd like to just state that um, 
I mean, I, I've always liked Indiana Jones, and I feel like none of us here hate Indiana. Like, it's not like it's not like oh my god, this movie's horrible. This is no. stupid. That's why we're the doing it this way. Is, but yeah. The fourth one is, is is the weakest of the films. Well, you're stepping carefully, I am being very. I've been on a movie podcast for the last two and a half years. I know what to say not to piss <laughs> I'm, people I'm off. I'm interested in seeing this movie now. It seems like the fourth one. You, no, the first. Oh, one. this, one? this yeah. one. I would watch this movie in a heartbeat. Well, okay. I know we're probably jumping the gun a little bit two here, minutes. but so Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. Isn't that much different than the fantasy and suspension of reality from the other films were just old? Uh-huh. And two, it reminds me, this, what we just did reminds me of what you're saying of when we did, or when we, uh, Shakespeare in Love. Mm-hmm. Or not Shakespeare in Love, um, Romeo and Romeo Juliet. Romeo and Juliet, yeah. Word for word, Shakespearean. It was play all. In the old English, and it was all just modern, and it completely changed it. And, and people who never thought that they could understand or connect with Shakespeare got Suddenly it. could, yeah. So. Yes, exact same words in different contexts can really change the way the film yeah. is. Why are you giving me eyes? I, 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 I cur- actually, you bring a good point, and I wonder four. if something like I wonder if something like Kingdom of the Crystal Skull, as is, redone with someone who has a little more courage to push the envelope. I don't think that Spielberg had the balls he had when he was a younger man. He's a grandfather now, and I think he made a movie like someone who takes that into consideration, whether consciously or subconsciously. Lucas said the same thing with the prequels. Yeah. Yeah. He made it for kids. Yeah. But, but uh, you know, uh, the young man who made Raiders of the Lost Ark didn't make Kingdom of the Crystal Skull. No. Could a young man... I'll tell you what, I just talked to, to our friend Ryan Frank from Backflip mm-hmm. Films about Crystal Skull. Because I said, look, I think Kingdom of the Crystal Skull could have worked with one single change. Live actors, live actors as the aliens. Hair and makeup. That one little thing would have changed everything. To use practical effects, that I would have changed everything. Practical effects, just in general, over yeah, CGI. Yeah. They rely too much on the CGI. That wasn't. And for the record, I'm promoting that name dropping. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But that—that that was my argument. That you yeah. could do. And somebody took the script and said, "We're going to make it this way." But if someone else had taken it and said, "No." If you use real physical We're sticking beings, to the original way we did, this. it would be scary. I think the the aliens would be scarier. I think they would have that edge that the that Raiders of the Lost Ark has. It would have also felt probably closer to the time frame, like if it had come out in '93. Yeah. Like they yeah, had waited a couple of years, they made part four, yeah. and they just you know early '90s live action. I certainly don't want to overanalyze Indiana <laughs> no. Jones as a whole. Yeah, 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 yeah. But just in <clears throat> translating script to page to produce. This, if this was presented to you guys, I didn't want to stop doing it. Yeah, yeah I wanted I, to get I, to the end. I kind of, I kind of wish there was more to the script. Even like, though we just read twenty-seven pages, even of though the Raven Bar was, like you said, it was going to be very wordy. And, yeah, yeah, you know, expositiony, but yeah. but all of the sound the, effects that went into it made it that fly. much. That much one, yeah. doing all yeah. of it. So I think one thing you should point out is that this this isn't the original script that we were. Wait, no, this isn't the movie script we read. This is not the film script. No, I. So when I when we were trying to imagine, like, well, what what script should we do? Raise the Lost Star came it came onto the table and um, I thought okay I want to try to find one of the earlier drafts so I did take the first draft so all the description and everything I was reading was from the first draft I did make cuts for time but uh if you if you were to go listen, Marion has extra dialogue in the bar scene. Extra dialogue and Tots blow smoke in her face, not the opposite. They probably like no no no. Marion's more of a badass. She should sure. do it. Yeah. Yeah. She owns this. Marion sheds bar. tears. Like yeah, and, she, 
No, uh, yeah, you did that a lot. Yeah, <laughs> Way to go! Big, but that was, and, and there's a kiss that I cut as well. And I, I don't. I made the choice just again for time. Before Indy leaves the bar, she says, "Before you go, you come here." You want me kissing Jack? Come here. And she says, "Kiss me." No, he kisses her. No. She slaps him again, and then, <laughs> and then says, "Go." And that's when he leaves. So, like, there's. It's interesting to look at a first draft script to what made it all the way to the movie. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's interesting because with all the action lines and stuff, that was the longest portion mm-hmm. in what in the movie is like the shortest scene. It's yeah. yeah. And you gotta think, no, come back tomorrow. Fight, 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 burn, let's go to Egypt. Goddamn partner. And and I wonder <laughs> somewhere along the line someone edits the script. You know, you get first, second, third, yeah. seventh draft is the furthest I could find, right? Mm-hmm. The the medallion that Marion has in the original script is broken in half, and she only has one half of it. There's an entire action sequence in Germany. Oh yeah, or yeah, yeah, um, in Germany against in Nazis. There's a there's oh. a Japanese archaeologist that Indy fights to get the first half of the of the medallion before going to Nepal. They, uh, I think that's mentioned. Not talking about Indiana Jones all the time, but it's mentioned in uh, Last Crusade. That there was a motorcycle chase scene that they cut out of this movie of Raiders that made it into, and they needed an extra scene between them going to Germany and them getting out of the castle. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, let's bring that scene in because we never got to shoot it. The motorcycle yeah. chase, yeah, yeah. Temple of Doom was a series of things that never made it into the, even the first draft of the yeah. script. Just ideas that Spielberg had for sequences. Mm-hmm. And I wonder, from a producer level, from like producing a series of films, if that sort of thing comes into play with. Oh, you know what we could do here? I think of um, filling in. When we did filling in for the 48-hour film festival, had we had the resources to do it, the idea was put on the table, let's bring D from Seven Year Wish yeah. and have him do a cameo here. Yep, yep. absolutely. But he, we couldn't make it happen, so he ended up, you know, we, we missed that chance. Yeah. Uh, but that was, a, that was a neat production idea in the midst of production. Well, I'm sure, like, okay, so in the uh, original... Uh, Raiders, uh, Indiana Jones is supposed to have this big fight in Egypt, and he's supposed to shoot a guy, you know, touting his sword. Or no, he's supposed to have this sword uh, sword fight. Big choreographed fight scene. But Harrison Ford got super sick, so they just improv, just pull out your gun and shoot him. And that's like one of the most iconic Indiana moments Yeah, one of the most iconic unscripted moments. I'm sure it wasn't scripted in the next movie when he's running from uh, Kali, Mm -hmm. and he's about to go over the bridge, and the same thing happens where a guy comes out, and the first is like, oh, he should grab his gun. Oh, shit, he doesn't have his gun like a callback. Like, yeah, I'm yeah. sure that wasn't in the script either. I, I almost wonder if it was, though. It very well could have been. so... Because at that point, it had been... But it only no. been one movie, yeah. and even though it was, like, huge... Yeah. I'm, I don't know, maybe. Maybe it'd be worth looking into. Was it... The first movie was in the timeline. They're not yeah. in order. Temple of Doom is first. first. Yeah. Right, so how can it be a callback? Well, it's a it's a pop cultural callback, not a. It's not storyline. That's actually it's not a future back call. <laughs> that's actually a complaint of Joss Whedon uh, discussing Avengers Two is that he's not going to have some Hulk go to slam around or punch Thor and Thor duck because that's a callback that is is just for fan service and he's not going to do that. And that moment of like reaching for the gun was such an iconic huh, that worked so well in the in Raiders. Let's find a way to put it in Temple of Doom. Yeah, it's actually a mistake because it's chronologically wrong. Mm-hmm. So, but regardless of that, what, what other thoughts do you guys have about this production? Would would you produce this, Jessica? Uh, going to answer it in a long way. Okay. Before we started, I would have said no. It's just going to be silly. And and when we first started it, it was silly. And 
I wasn't really sure when Marion showed up how that would play into everything because you were all very similar. That's you true. Know? Yeah. Um, but this it, is the fault of improv there. I mean, is, like, right. as soon as Eaton had a talk, I was like, I did not think one bit about how the F I'm going <laughs> to do this goddamn voice. So I was like, I'm just going to play him like Jiminy Click, where I'm going to go really high all the time and really low. Yeah, well, so... You had made, like, two little, like, noises before your character came out, and I'm like, what? And then you did it again, I'm like, oh my god, that's going to be your character. That's the character talking, I'm like, right. oh man! Yeah, so, um... I think with that, that brought it. I mean, that certainly wasn't me and my performance. It was just so different and not what you expected. And I think that that did it. So if we were going to produce this, we would need more of those characters to be different. Yeah, mm-hmm. 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 I guess. I, I, I think would not it would do, be so hilarious. I would I not do Brody so or Sean Connery, just to say that right now. Yeah, I, I did the Clinton. I would I do that would give, I should have done Clinton. Clinton. Range. I, I, I flipped him at the last second, and I'm like, I don't know why I did that. I should have done <laughs> It was still somebody. funny. It was just more was subtle hard. in the beginning. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead, Chris. There's no way in hell I would produce this. There's no <laughs> way I would sign off on it. Why is it? Um... Because you couldn't carry the whole movie on it. It would get lost, I think, at some point and wouldn't be as funny all the way through. Mm-hmm. That's mm-hmm. My gut tells me that this is great as a read-through. But it would get old. As audio. And you can keep that pace like that. Because we needed that pace. Because it was kitschy. Yeah. If you draw that out into more action sequences, 90 minutes I, long. you're going to lose people. My opinion. Go check. You can make this a 45-minute stage show. Yeah, I would produce that yeah. to produce the entire of Ray's show. Chad and I disagree for the same reasons, and we're on the same page. <laughs> well, yeah, I'm you saying said, I wouldn't make it a feature. Yeah. He's saying he wouldn't either. He'd do it as a stage show. Yeah. First of all, I'm never going to remake Indiana Jones because that's just fucking stupid. <laughs> oh, so you're back to agreeing? I agree. <laughs> but but we can remake Star Wars, right? But like the exact way we did it, we get you get like six principal characters, and a lot of them are going to overlap. Indy will always play Indy unless he's not in a scene. Maybe he'll play the monkey, whatever. But like. <laughs> Bad dates. Yeah. Um, Asps. Very dangerous. Oh my god. I wish we would have gotten to Sala. But as a stage Asps. show, if you, if you cut it down, like cut a lot of that bar scene stuff out, like just get the bar scene going, get through it. Yeah. You could do that in 45 minutes with everybody doing the sound effects on stage. That would be a riot. So you're in, <laughs> and you get, no, and you get the audience involved. Totally. Rocky Horror, um, right? You yeah. Know? I was going to say. This. So you're catering to people who know. Totally. Yeah, absolutely. absolutely. Who would want to see this? Go pull ahead. a uh, uh, reduced Shakespeare company mm-hmm. version of, of this, if you've ever seen them. The the, the, the troupe that will do that, that's done like all the works of William Shakespeare abridged. Yeah, yeah. The uh, the reduced Shakespeare company. Oh, okay. Yeah. Look them up on YouTube. They're all, the entire thing. And it's they do all of the works for Shakespeare in like a two-hour stage show. It's Whoa. three guys. It's the, Whoa. But it's goofy. The complete it's works of Shakespeare abridged. Oh. So like Titus and, is a cooking show. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And like Romeo, they do Romeo and Juliet. They do uh, Hamlet or Romeo and Juliet is the last one. It, but they do one of them where they do it. And then they're like, all right, everybody, that was our show. We But we decided for an encore, we are going to do it again. But this time faster. Because yeah. they spent 40 minutes of the show doing it. And then they do it again in about... Five minutes, and then they're like, "All right, we're gonna do it even faster." And they do it One in like minute. ten seconds, and Whoa. it's basically it just results in them all running out, going, ah, 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 and they all "Drop dead!" dead. And like, that's it. Like, but it's hilarious because they there's interaction, there's there's the audience interaction. It basically makes it look like it's three guys who are just bullshitting their way through doing Shakespeare. this. Like, like, oh yeah, cliff notes. Yeah, like, oh, we're here to do Shakespeare. Okay, so what are we gonna do? Like, they pull out their script at one point. They're looking through it like that's the whole point so yes if you approach this like that do a 45 minute 
Raiders of the Lost Ark abridged with six actors mm -hmm. and purposely doing it so that way the audience knows four of those six actors are recurring here's, and doing the Here's a produ production question then. Could you produce Raiders abridged and not get in trouble? Like, is there a way to accomplish it? Because wouldn't it count as parody? Wouldn't it, count, wouldn't it fall under the umbrella of parody and satire? So our main character is Buddhist, and we call him Hindi. Well, no, I mean, <laughs> no, no, no. Um, actually, uh, that's very loose. But here's the thing. I'd write it first, yeah. get it done locally, and maybe ask for forgiveness later if yeah. it catches big. Yeah. Because you could open it and nobody could go see it. Because I'm, I'm curious if that's how like Evil Dead would. the Musical was, was crafted. Make it, produce it, then ask for forgiveness. I think it was a look. If I remember the story correctly, it was a local thing because it was made in Toronto. Can okay, Canada. I knew it was yeah, Canada. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I think it started getting bigger and bigger. And then somebody caught wind of it. Mm -hmm. And I think Bruce Campbell and Sam Raimi were like, yeah, fire. Okay. <laughs> I think I think should I think we, Spielberg should we sue would, them. Okay, don't worry about it. Well, yes, good job. Well, wait, Disney. Oh shit, Disney owns the rights to Disney. Yeah, now they do. Shit. We should have done this about two years ago. It yeah. would have been completely okay. <laughs> Spielberg, we're getting sued for this. I, uh, we so, already have the law settlement. When Spielberg found out about Raiders of Lost Ark, the adaptation that those kids had done, um, and actually the kid's mom found the old VHS. After a decade or so of him completely forgetting about it, and they did like a live screening for all these, it was like a reunion, brought it, and it got a little bit of attention. The question was, you guys can show this again? Can you can you take this around the country? And like, we don't know. Spielberg caught wind of it. George Lucas caught wind of it. They both wanted to watch it, so they did a private screening. George Lucas, he didn't care. He was like, I have nothing to say on this. But Spielberg was like, you can absolutely 100% tour with this. All proceeds go to charity. You guys don't make a dime. Go for it. And that's what they were able to do. They were doing. They did a national tour of Raiders of the Lost Ark, the adaptation. I know. I know. Lucas wouldn't give a shit. He's. I mean, with Star Wars years ago, he's like, yeah, have whatever. <laughs> and I'm thinking, like a producer going, did they get like expenses covered? I mean, did they could they have? Yes, yeah, so like as long as I can cover expenses, <laughs> yeah. I don't care about not making money on it. A, I'm going to produce it. B, I'm going to be in it. I just want to have fun with it. <laughs> mm -hmm. And I feel like if you did that, if you were to do like a local production of this. Mm -hmm. of, of of radars raiders exclamation point abridged that's yeah. exactly how you would title it <laughs> absolutely it'd be, it'd be raiders it'd be raiders <laughs> yeah no abridged be, but like, i feel like if you did it if you did it locally and uh, you you didn't you didn't charge it's like look it's it's free emission you know you took the cut mm -hmm. on just doing it like it's something we wanted to do yeah. we'll rent it it's our money going into the renting the donations space accepted donations accepted by all means not not required but but you know if you liked it donate if you want otherwise mm -hmm. whatever but if you did it locally and then it, you know, then at least you're not earning money because I know a lot of cases yeah, it comes to the whole yeah. earning cash side of stuff. Um, okay. One thing I would add too, if it did get popular enough, make it interesting and every night either pull out of a hat or audience participation. Which characters? Which, well, which, which character you characters? do? Yeah. And well, no, no, it, it would be kind of hard to memorize the entire script. You no, know? no, I mean like what's the night you're what going to be? What type of character? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Barack Obama. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Barack Obama. Barack Obama. Jeff will be portraying Barack Obama as Tote. <laughs> Tot. 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 Damn it! <laughs> I never got that. It was Belzig or Belzig in the in the first draft, and I got like halfway through the script, and I'm like, "Who's Belzig? Belzig? Belzig?" I had to like Google it. I'm like, "Oh, that was his original." It was Ernst Belzig was the character's original so name. Did you change it? Then? I, 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 I flipped it to Tot. Oh, yeah. I should. So I could have left it. That's consistent at least yeah. a little bit. Yeah. Tater. Interesting. So I guess the the is this 
Raiders, the goofiness that we just <laughs> interpreted from script to whatever we want to do with it, is it unproducible? No! no. <laughs> I didn't need a unison answer. No. But no, I... I the, no! <laughs> but who'd want no. Well, and I'd be curious, you know, it's, it is it is also one thing to do something like this live and for us to be interacting with it. Mm-hmm. I wonder what it will sound like and feel like. Just sit back and listen to it. We're going to listen to it later and be mad at ourselves for the voices we chose to do. Like, why did we think this was funny? We just all sat around and said it was great. It was off. You know, like, what is it going to sound like when we play back? Think about If you're going to produce something like this, it's funny and genuine. You need some serious quality actors to make that sound funny and genuine Mm -hmm. the 70th time. Right, True. And that's that's theater for you. That's live theater. I know. I I mean, we've all done theater. So we know that the challenge is, can the opening night, the second night be as good? Or is the, and the last night be yeah. equal to each other, if not better, as the show goes on. Um, the and you know, I'll say, Jessica, I bet you we are going to listen to this later and be like, this isn't as funny as I thought. But the idea right. is funny. Funny, yeah. In execution, cold, which is what we were doing. Exactly, right. Uh, you know, there, I could definitely tell you I would have made different choices <laughs> in the voices I chose to do. Yeah. Not taught because I would have done exactly as the German therapist, like I did. <laughs> Let's just let's just reiterate the fact that that was the first time and first and only time we read the script. Yeah. And I haven't uh, seen the movie. Bullshit. <laughs> My mom has seen that movie. She doesn't watch movies. Eric, has Dad watched that movie with you? Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I agree that we might we're probably gonna listen to this and be like, oh man, we had, what a weird. I do that with every podcast though. When but I we got to someone. hang out with our friends and make That's something true. fun, That's and we true. didn't have to wear pants again. <laughs> no pants, no underwear, and That's this time no undershirt. That's it's just got Jeff is slowly naked. getting more and more you, naked. You brought your A game, Jeff. I'm wearing a coat. All right. Well, any final thoughts before we wrap things up here, guys? Uh, I can't wait for uh, Raiders: The Abridged Version Part Two, <laughs> followed by Wars. Exclamation point! It's the Star Wars Abridged Version. Oh, uh, yeah. See, so you know what? Star Wars has been too done. Too yeah, late. that's the thing. I okay. was thinking the Empire. Same thing. we'll, 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 dis- we'll discuss the later. Skull. We'll Take discuss we'll later. Okay. We'll just, and we'll do it completely serious. Thank you, everyone, for listening. To uh, come back again next time, we'll have another uh, script reading. Whether it's comedic or dramatic, you won't know until the episode is aired. Thank you very much. Thank you guys for being here. We're out of here. Can you do the voice like for a few days? Just like be the bad guy. Bye, everybody. This has been a joint production between Firmament Films and Ghost Hat Media. Find them both online at www.firmamentfilms.com and www.ghosthat.net.